Hi, I'm Larry Apke. I'm here today to tell you why every company should have a chief agile officer. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the Agile for Agilists podcast, the series made by Agile enthusiasts for Agile enthusiasts. And now for your hosts, Drew Podwall and Brad Nelson. Hey, Agilists. Today we have an exciting episode with author Larry Apke, where he will share Apke's law and we'll discuss the role senior leadership plays in this thing called Agile. If you like what you hear, let us know by following us on your favorite streaming service or let your friends know by sharing this episode with them. If you have feedback for us, there are multiple methods for contacting us available on our site, agileforagilists.com. If you want to check out more of Larry's work, you can head over to larryapke.com. Now, let's get this episode rolling. The thing that we wanted to talk about is this concept of chief agile officer, which I blogged about, you know, a dozen years ago. And there's there, there was a gentleman who just recently wrote a book called Chief Agility Officer. I haven't I haven't read it. I bought it, but hmm. I'm waiting to read it. I think it's a, I think it's an idea that is a serious idea and a valid idea. And my experience over the last you know dozen years since I came up with the concept has been borne out. You know, maybe it's confirmation bias, but I think there is a need in a lot of organizations for folks who see the world the way we see it and who can take the things that we see and, and kind of infuse those into organizations. We've got a lot of other chief, you know, officers who, um, I don't know, uh, it may not, in my mind, be as important as some, some like a chief agile officer, specifically for software development or complex knowledge work. Yeah, so Larry and I met when I presented at his meetup or his nonprofits meetup, I had presented in Miami this year, the Agile International Conference, and I met Anu there. And she helps out with these different meetups. And so she reached out to me, was like, hey, are you willing to, to give your talk at these meetups? I'm like, yeah, sure, I'd love to. Funny story is she told me it was at five. I'm Eastern time zone. I did not know it was gonna be 8 p.m. <laughs> um, but it was still a lot of fun. And then we connected on LinkedIn. And then I've been thinking a lot about, like I became an agile coach because to me issues exist above the team that are out of the scrum master's power. Mm -hmm. You could argue influence and all of that, but that was the reason why I became an agile coach. It's still a very passionate topic of mine. And so I was writing about that sort of stuff, uh, challenges with leadership, challenges with our environment, in our corporations. And then I'd written one and I don't remember which one it was now, but you had reached out to me and you had mentioned this chief agile officer concept that you'd written about. And the funny thing is when you sent me the article, I do actually remember reading that years ago. Uh, I wasn't just saying that I was like, Oh yeah, memory returned to me, but you also had a law with it. I don't remember what you call it. Like Larry's law or, or yeah, it was, it was something. Apke's law of agile transformation. Now it's now Apke's first law because that was <clears throat> when I told you the book I was writing, that was the book I was going to write, which was Apke's laws of agile transformation. And I got off topic and ended up writing the book that I ended up publishing on the, the golden rule. But what I wrote many, many years ago was that your agile transformation will go as far as the highest ranking person who understands and supports agile, something like that. I don't remember the exact wording. And it makes sense uh, because I, what I have seen, and I don't know, I'm, I'm assuming you all have seen it as well, is that 
a lot of the transformations, and rightfully so, will, will start at the team level. They'll, they'll kind of go from the bottom up, and then they, the rest of the organization says, hey, these guys are doing great, let's do it, and then they try to do it. But they don't really understand it, and a lot of times they don't really support it. So when there's a conflict within an organization, conflict is generally mediated through the hierarchical relationships that are inherent in most organizations. And so you need somebody to arbitrate when there's conflict or, or, or tension. Because uh, I've seen it before where you, you'll have some people who want to continue in kind of a, a project scope-based funding, for instance. But it's optimal that you move to kind of a product-based funding if that's what you're doing is building software products because project funding and incentives cause all kinds of problems like technical debt, et cetera. You need somebody who can who can arbitrate that and get the two entities to work together. And sometimes these are pretty high-ranking individuals. I've seen instances where one VP can derail an agile transformation of, of 600 developers and, you know, 50-plus teams because they just don't want to, quote-unquote, play ball. They don't see the value in it. And I think other people have seen that as well. Or we've worked as coaches where they do okay when we're contract coaches, but then the money runs out or they declare victory and they send the coaches away. And then it quickly reverts back to what it was before the coaches were there. You need somebody who can champion that. And unfortunately, if you look at the folks who are in the C-suite, most of them, they have certain abilities. You could say, well, maybe it should be the CTO and you don't need one. Maybe it should be the CEO. You don't need one. But I still think you need a separate person for it. Now, maybe you don't need this separate person forever. Maybe this isn't a role that lasts for the next 50, 100 years. Maybe it lasts for the next 20 to 30 years. In fact, you look at AI and you, how you, you might have to have somebody for that at that level because of the just just the, the game-changing ability. The One of the ways I came up with it, I think I explained it in the blog post, was when electricity was new, it was a game changer for manufacturing. And they, they there was, and I, I didn't know this, but my friend Tom Malosh, uh, who was my mentor uh, as a coach, he told me about this, but they used to have chief electricity officers because they needed somebody at that level to be able to say to folks, hey, here's how you can use this new technology to further your business. But there's there's no longer chief electricity officers anymore. It's not new. I would think it would be the same thing with what I would consider the concept of agility. But the thing that really is interesting is then people say, well, what does this person do and how is it different? And I think, and I've been talking a lot about this lately and writing about this lately and teaching about this lately, is people who have this agile background, they have an agile mindset. And I know there's a lot of people who have trouble with that term, mindset. but I see it, and I think it's real, because the way we view the world, that's the way I explain it. We see the world differently. Everybody sees the world differently. That's, just, that's science. This, this can be proven. We all do it based on our history, based on our gender, based on our education, based on our environment, based on our incentives, etc. We see certain things in the world. The way that agilists see the world is fundamentally different than the way other people see the world. And that's the real key to me in what needs to change because people who are bringing a t- kind of this Tayloristic mechanistic mindset to knowledge work 
are causing a lot of problems and tension. And somebody who is a chief agility officer, a chief agile officer, what do you want to call it, can obviously have a much greater influence on people than if you're just a coach. And there's nothing wrong with just being a coach, mind you. But the other thing I've had problems with coaches, other coaches and people in the agile world, when they say mindset isn't a thing, I say, well, you don't see it because it's like a fish knowing it's wet. You already have the mindset. So for you, you're making the assumption that everybody else does. It's, it's something that's one of our, you know, 700 plus biases called the curse of knowledge. Because you already have this mindset, you don't realize like the fish doesn't realize it's wet, that it's so important to what you do because you've already taken that, that step, that leap mentally where others haven't. And so a lot of these people who say it's not mindset, what they do, and I think this is a problem for coaching, is they try to change behavior directly. And I think that that's not really the best way for success. Now, it can work because how we behave changes how we see the world. How we behave changes how we think about the world. But I think if we start with the thing that we we overlook too often as coaches, if we start with how we see the world and help others to see the world as we see it, I think you're going to have a much, much greater chance for lasting change as opposed to trying to change behavior and hoping that the thought process will change. Plus, people don't like to be forced into things, whether explicitly or implicitly. And so there will be some resistance because the one thing is say, hey, look, you can tell me to do anything. You're my boss. You've got a metaphorical gun to my head. But this is why the reason when the agile coaches leave companies, they tend to revert back. You don't own my thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to take away my agency as an individual, then I'm going to keep my thoughts and I'm going to keep my viewpoint. I mean, we see we see it everywhere. We see it in politics more so these days and, and because of the, what social media has done to create these confirmation bubbles. But I see the same thing in human behavior. So my goal till I retire, which I hope is sooner rather than later, my goal till I retire is to really help people see the world differently. And then uh, as a result, in my practice, other coaches will do the day-to-day coaching of, okay, here's how we, here's the behavior we change. But I want to make sure that people know before they, you know, somebody starts messing with the behavior that here's the reasons why we're changing behavior. Towards the end there, you were touching on lean change, mm-hmm. uh, which we had Jason Little on a few episodes ago about how like if you try to force change on people they're going to be resistant if you co-create it with them they're already bought in there's no convincing but i also wanted to point out a few years ago i took pro sci organizational change management training and i think they would agree with your ceo try not to call it a cow your ceo position my trainer though taught it in a little bit more fun way that will probably always stick with me. He he called it the Cheech and Chong rule. Go as high as you can, as long as you can. <laughs> so for for any change that you want to make, you need that sponsor as high up as possible. And one of the things to reaffirm what you're saying is that managers don't even have to be against what you're doing. They don't have to be resistant But if they're not bought in, some of these things take effort Mm -hmm. that they just don't care enough about to make happen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, we as human beings will stay with what we know rather than try something different. We tend to have to be incentivized in some ways to do something different. 
there's a lot of literature on it. You know, satisficing is the word that they use. It's satisfactory and sufficient. And we sometimes have to be forced in a little bit to change as well. But the interesting thing that we found with, with the work that I do, which, which again, the, the training that I did for the nonprofit, we started calling the Agile MBA. I rebranded it. I'm calling it the VUCA MBA because I think it's much more Agile. Most people's perceptions of Agile are, I think, a little bit skewed and narrow these days. So I want to kind of divorce what I'm teaching from Agile, even though it really is, to me, pure Agile, is what we found is that the people who went through my class where we talked about, for lack of a better word, mindset. And we talked about what the agile mindset meant. And, and it's a lot of metaphors and, and things so that we can help guide people from where they are today and what they see today into to kind of what we see as agilists. Um, we found that those people actually were easier to coach. And so that is when I talk about my mission going forward is that I want to be able to do that. It's almost like I, I'm plowing the field for the rest of the coaches to be able to, to plant uh, effectively. Because I think until you have that, it, sometimes it's very hard to get people to do things. But what the co- some of the coaches found that I worked with uh, at my most recent job is that the people who went through my class were the easiest to coach and they had a better overall understanding of agility. So that's something that I want to do, but not just for teams, but also for executives. And the reason being, whether I, you know, I'm a chief agile officer or I'm working with a CEO or a chief financial officer or whatever it may be, is that the higher you are, the more people you influence. And it's really about that influence. And a lot of times when I'm in a gig, one of the first things I'll do is I'll come into the, and I'll say, you know, I'll send out an email to everybody. And I'll say, give me the top five influencers in the organization. It's not always the C-level folks, right? A lot of times it's a highly respected technical lead or architect or something. I want those names. Those are the people I want to work with. Those are the people I want to talk with because I know, you know, it's kind of like if you, I always use sports metaphors. It drives people crazy. But, you know, kicking an extra point is one point. Scoring a touchdown is six points. You, you want to score the touchdown. And getting somebody who has a great deal of influence is a touchdown. Right. And getting an individual is an extra point. Yes, you want it, but it's not where you're going to make the most difference. And I believe that agile is transformative for the people that it touches, the people who can start to see the world differently, who can kind of embrace this mindset. I think their life gets better. And that's what I want to bring to people. I think that the people doing the work actually can do better work. They can do higher quality work. And that's something that people actually want to do. And I want to be able to bring it to them. And I know that this kind of mindset, I think it's very helpful for people. You know, I thinking back a little bit, there was a time in my career, not too far back, but where I was coming into a small to medium-sized organization. And um, they hired me as a coach. They wanted me to coach between the CTO and the CPO, between that layer. And I was trying to also like figure out how to coach up and lateral around that as well. And, you know, what I found was that the COO and the head of HR both saw me as a threat because when I started talking about wanting to influence culture and mindset, that was a threat to the balance that she had um, in owning that. And then when I started talking about like business agility and an overarching operating model and, and how a mindset fits into there, the COO was so, have you experienced that before? And well, I, I see. A, I think a lot of people view it as a threat. 
there's a lot. I mean, the the most interesting stuff to me is kind of the the psychology behind it, how the human mind does these strange things. Because I'll put it a different way. Imagine that you have been running an organization, or you've been part of running an organization. You've been successful by what you've been doing for years. And so somebody comes along and says, wait a minute, you could do things better. Well, that is, is a threat to a lot of people because what you're basically saying is you, you could have done better, but you didn't do better, right? I mean, at this point, the Agile Manifesto has been around for, what, 20 years, you know, so if these people aren't familiar with it, my God, what have they been doing for 20 years? Especially if you're like maybe a CTO or, or, or something technology, a VP of software or something. These are things you should be familiar with. These, but if you're not, that's going to be obviously a threat to you because somebody's going to ask the question, or at least in your mind, you're going to think somebody's asking, what, what have you been doing for the last 20 years? So I think there's a lot of people who are threatened by the world, you know, the, the view that agilists have. But this is nothing new. I mean, and I talk in the class about Ignaz Semmelweis, who introduced the concept of hand washing for doctors. They didn't throw this guy a parade, right? They resisted because, again, it was a threat to them. It was a threat to the way that they currently did business because they're like, what is this person, you know, is imprudent or whatever the word is because they're, they're, he's saying that we should have been doing this and we haven't been doing this. Uh, and so people don't like to be told they're wrong, which is one of the reasons why I'm big on how we view things. Look, I'm not forcing you to, to view things the way I view things. I'm just going to present the way I view things. It's been helpful to a lot of people. I think it's going to be helpful to you. But I can't guarantee it's going to be helpful to you or not. So, I mean, we have to be very careful with when we go into gigs and things when we're working with people, especially in positions of power, that we don't become threatening. I mean, the, the interesting thing to me is, is we talk a lot about psychological safety. But you have to even imagine the psychological safety that's necessary for the people at the sea level. I, I know that sounds very strange to some people because obviously these are very powerful people that make a hell of a lot more money than we do. But imagine how safe these people feel in their jobs. They don't, right? They, right. they have to answer to some very powerful interests. There's all kinds of politics and intrigue that goes on at these levels because there's very few places and a bunch of people who want them. They are not psychologically safe. So as a coach, if you can't help build psychological safety for, for not just the teams and the, and the managers and the middle managers, but if you can't bring that same kind of psychological safety to the people who are at the sea level, that's where I would think, again, going back to this concept of a chief agility officer, though there may be people who would be intimidated or, or upset about it. If you are in that role and you're able to actually go in and say, look, I'm here to help you all be successful as well, I think there's room for it. But, yeah, I, I don't think – I mean, most organizations – you bring in a chief agile officer in most organizations, you're going to get a chilly reception at the beginning. And it's going to be up to the person who takes on that role to get folks to understand that, that you aren't a threat to them, that you're actually there to, to help them be more successful at their work. Because when they are successful, the organization is successful, the people who, who work in the organization are successful. I would also imagine that the person who creates this, plants the seed of an idea into the mind of the CEO, right, or the CTO or the CEO to say like, you know, I really think you guys should consider having a chief agile officer, that they can't do so 
in a way where they're already envisioning themselves for the job, that they have to be kind of selfless to recognize that the person who opens the door a little bit doesn't get the seat, but they get to introduce somebody else who would fit the bill for the seat. Because I, I feel like not always a conflict of interest, but I, I would imagine that it would feel like somebody's trying to pull a fast one here. Oh, you, you're the one who created this this seat. Of course you want it, you know? So, Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to make any bones about it. I, I would certainly love to have it. I put the idea out there a dozen years ago. It hasn't happened yet. I mean, I called myself chief agile officer of my nonprofit because I get to choose my own title. But I mean, you know, in all seriousness, I don't see it happening out there. But I think what I think is really important, I think this goes to what you're saying. I mean, if somebody says, Larry, I want you to be a chief agile officer, I'm not going to say no, yeah. um, because I think it's something I, that needs to happen, and I think I could do it well. But what I'm more concerned with is that the concept of this gets a little bit more publicity. So again, if that's what you're talking about is opening the door. Yeah, I would love to be the one uh, along, you know, we're, we're talking about it now. So there's publicity about it. Um, I'd love to be the one who helps get a little more publicity about it, get it to be more of a normal conversation and get people to consider it because I truly believe it. I mean, we had, uh, you know, all kinds of chief titles, if you look them up, um, and some of them to me are strange. I'm not saying they're right or wrong, but chief digital officer, how's that different than, you know, your chief technical officer or something of that nature? Why was that position created? It's hard for me to understand how the argument can be made for some of the other positions that are being argued about and not enough argument for something like chief agile officer. That's that's what I don't understand. I would imagine that in companies that have like a chief information officer, chief digital officer, and a chief technology officer, that one of the delineations is that they still don't consider back office systems to be products yet. So if it's no. internally facing, that's probably the CTO. If it's customer facing, it's the, the CDO. I'm not saying that's right, but yeah. that's the first thing that comes to mind for me. Right. Yeah. Well, and yeah. it may be. I mean, time will tell. Every once in a while, because I wrote the blog post years ago, somebody will reach out to me, whether it be a, you know like you all on a podcast or something, and we'll talk about it. And uh, I just want the idea out there. People can think I'm crazy. They might think it's a bad idea. That's fine. Let's talk about it. And I'm sure that there's a lot of companies that would benefit from it. I've seen companies that I think would benefit from it. And I've talked to people that I've worked with at companies that I think would benefit from it. So there's at least smoke, if not fire, that we should put a little bit behind this idea. I have known a few people that have been pretty high up, like report directly to either a CTO or even the CEO that were responsible for the Agile transformation. So I've seen it get close never quite C-suite. I think one of the challenges that comes to mind as we're talking about this, though, and I think you were touching on a little bit, Drew, is oftentimes when we go into organizations to coach them on Agile, we're hired by someone to teach someone else. Mm -hmm. And that someone else is not them. And so that would be something that I think would be an interesting challenge as a CAO if you finally had like the CEO, like maybe CEO.com finally publishes how everyone needs to have a CAO. So now every company wants it. And so they're like, yeah, let's bring it in. But they're just doing it likely because it's a trend, which I think is part of the problem with Agile today. And the CEO and the CEO and the CTO don't want the CAO there to teach them. Yeah. No, teach the people under us to be Agile. 
Yeah, and that is a problem, and I think it's a problem that you talk to a lot of coaches, and they'll, they'll say that this is an issue because, you know, the agility should come from all levels of the organization. And again, it being, in my mind, a philosophy, if you look at the Agile Manifesto, and, and a philosophy to me is a mindset. It's a way of looking at the world. Yeah, I, I mean, you get that all the time, where it, it's not for me, it's for them, which is great. We all have to eat and we all need jobs. We'll help them. But the problem is that we can only help them so much before it bumps up into some of the, usually the behaviors and ways of thinking of the people that hired you to work with them. The biggest superpower for, for the C-level, maybe we could put aside chief agile officer and let's go with another idea that I think would be very, very beneficial to organizations is they have to be humble. I think the higher you are within an organization, and I've worked with some C-level people who are humble, but not all of them are that way. But I think humility goes a long way. Humility says, look, I may not be right about this. And having that willingness to look at the world differently. The $64,000 question, if you talk to us old folks, we know what that means. But I mean, that's the big question, right? Is can you get people to actually show up? I believe when I talk about my training and the effect that it has on not just individuals and scrum masters or product owners, but also on managers and VPs and and whoever takes it, the hardest part I have is getting them in the room because they think that they don't need it. So there's this lack of humility that really causes uh, problems within organizations. Specifically, I'm going to talk again mostly about kind of software development, knowledge work organizations. Manufacturing is different. I don't, I don't even want to pretend to talk about manufacturing in this discussion. I want to talk about knowledge work, which is what most of us do these days and how it's fundamentally different. And most of the people who've risen to power, I don't think they see that. I don't think that they see that knowledge workers are fundamentally different than people who dig ditches or do physical labor or work in manufacturing on assembly line. It is. Science has told us that time and time again. And so, you know, simple concepts I try to get to them, like there's a big difference between management and leadership. Oh, yeah. And and some people see it. You guys see it right away, again, because you're, you're the fish who doesn't know it's wet. But There's a big difference because you talk to most people, even in our business, software development business, they talk about managers. And I say, I don't need managers because I can go to every member of your team and ask them a very simple question. I do this with all the people I train. I say, do you need to be managed? Raise your hand. You know how many hands I get up? Zero. We can't even agree if the earth is round at this point, but I can get everybody in a room to agree that they don't need to be managed. (laughs) Right? They don't need to be managed. They need to be led. There's a difference between the two. And unfortunately, there's too many people in positions of power and authority within organizations who don't know the difference. And the difference is, if we got any C-level people listening, the difference between management and leadership is the difference between making some money and a whole bunch of money, if that's the kind of language that you understand. Because people who are led are not motivated, they're inspired. And that's completely different as well because knowledge workers don't need to be motivated. Science keeps telling us again and again, they need to be inspired because they're already motivated. These are the things like what I'm trying to help teach people. The closest thing that I've seen to what you're talking about, and I've only seen it on TV. I don't know if you guys watch Billions. Have you ever watched Billions? Yeah, I watched it, yeah. This is the Wendy character um, who's basically the therapist slash performance coach for the company. And, and you know, I have a good friend of mine who was in my uh, ICF coaching cohort 
who that's what she does for a living. She's she's a performance coach that focuses on creating alignment at the C-suite and mm-hmm. and being an arbitrator as well as a personal performance coach. And I feel like that's the that could be the gateway in. Like in the role that I was in, you know, I gave myself the title of of head of business agility uh, mm-hmm. because I was trying to like put my flag in and be able to move around the company to work towards business agility. And, you know, that obviously didn't work out very well. But I think it's just coaching, going in at first to provide coaching at the C-suite level, because that's something that a lot of the C-suite like, value, and appreciate. Then you just kind of got to hide the veggies and then slowly introduce this thing called agile, business agility. Yeah, it may be. I mean, I don't know what the key is going to be, if it even is something that ever happens. Uh, Again, talking about human beings and trying to study, you know, the psychology of what's going on. It's just very difficult. It's one of the most difficult things in the world is to get people to see the world differently. Or to even get them to admit that they don't see the world accurately. You know, this is the problem as the example of Semmelweis and hand washing. At the time, they didn't have germ theory. They didn't think that there were these little small things that we couldn't see that was causing these, uh, you know, uh, infections. And at the time, it was, uh, you know, a lot of women who were dying in childbirth was the reason that he said we should start washing our hands. It's hard to get people to see the world differently. That's why I think it's so important, though, because it unlocks things for you. I talk in, in my training, I talk about what I'm trying to get is I'm trying to get to the aha response. Because the aha response, if you really think about it, you know, everybody's had this. So go back to whether it's high school or something recently, where somebody was able to explain something to you. And from that moment, you saw things differently. You perceived the world differently. And it all kind of fell in place. That's what I'm looking for. And that's the power of what I teach, and that's the power, I think, if you had a chief agile officer they could bring to an entire organization, not just small parts, which is what I tends to happen when I'm in, involved with an organization, is I get to some folks. I'd love to get to everyone, and I'd love to have that ability to have influence throughout. And really, the best place you're going to do that is you're going to do that from the C-suite. But that's what you're looking for, because we've all had it in our lives. And that's what Agile really is. At some point in time, all of us, you know, nobody's born an Agilist. At some point in our lives, we looked around and said, wait a minute, this makes a lot of sense. This is how the world is and was probably different from what we saw before. And some of us have been involved with it so long, we just don't notice the fact that there was a point in time where the world changed for us. And we have to go back to that. Because the people that we're working with, the vast majority, it hasn't changed for them. And we have to get them to to the point where we got to, which is where we see the world fundamentally different. Where, where I can have a conversation with somebody and say, there's a fundamental difference between managers and leaders. Most people wouldn't, they look at you like, well, so what? I, I don't understand what you're talking about. But it is important to understand that. And an agilist, I think, will, you know, people who see the world the way we see it are going to understand that right away. But a lot of people won't. Because they haven't been taught and they haven't been given that, which is the whole purpose of what I'm trying to do in my life and career with the, the training I do, which, you know, I've rebranded as the VUCA MBA. I don't know if I'll be a chief agile officer, but at least I can train a few people here and there. Well, it's wonderful to be the kingmaker as well, right? Yeah, well, or the of course, maker. but 
I, I mean, the interesting thing about that is we could all make the argument that what I'm seeing is delusional. Okay. But again, after you get a bit of a history as a coach, you get a track record of certain successes or, or, or not. I mean, they're not all successes, but you do have certain successes. And those, those successes, what you build on and say, look, I may be del- completely delusional, but here's how I see the world. And, and I've taught other people this and, and it's made their world better. I mean, I have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of testimonials from people who've taken my class and said, hey, my world is different. It's better. So I think there's something there. I, I can't just dismiss it. Yes. Um, but it takes a little bit of hubris, too, to say, okay, you need to see the world the way I see it. That's not exactly what I'm saying, but it's, it's close enough, right? And that, that's kind of off-putting, too, if you're not careful. So tell us a bit about the VUCA MBA. What does VUCA stand for? Sure. The interesting story, and I'll go a little bit deep on this, is I used to teach a class called the Agile MBA. And the reason we called it that is we had people from all over the world taking it. I had a lot of people who had MBAs, and and I had people come up to me after class and says, here's the stuff that they should have taught me in my MBA program. So jokingly, we just called it the Agile MBA. There's actually a few people who got offended by the the fact that we used MBA because it obviously stands for something else. when I left the nonprofit and decided I wanted to take this out to corporations on my own, uh, I wanted to rebrand it and make it not just agile, but also uh, I think it's applicable to, to things other than software development and agility. So I, I searched around and said, well, wh- what does this help us do? Well, the world, the VUCA part is the world is increasingly volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. How do we survive in that world, right? We know this is true. It just... Look at uh, companies and how long they last in the Fortune 500 and stuff like that. We know the world is getting more and more, I don't want to say chaotic, but volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. So how do we deal with that? Well, the MBA part, which I didn't think about for a very long time, but um, it was actually my wife said, if you're going to use MBA, you need to come up with something for it so that people don't confuse. And uh, believe it or not, we came up with a good thing. We call it Mindset for Business Agility. And so that's the VUCA MBA. And basically what it is, 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 is it's uh, based on this Agile MBA that I taught for years, which is about the basically the mindset behind how do we deal with volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguousness. So that's the deal. The, the class itself uh, and the offering I have is a three-day class. The teaching portion of it is roughly two days, and then I spend the, the third day actually working with the company and doing um, exercises that are specific to that company and applying some of the knowledge and, and, and also consulting because, you know, they, they're going to ask me questions of, we're doing this, this, and this. What would you do? That kind of thing. And the third day, I mean, I think the whole thing is valuable, else I wouldn't be doing it. But the third day is really valuable because um, it's an opportunity for me to kind of one-on-one consult with the organization and help them with their transformation. So the MBA is something you sell to companies or do you have public classes for people too where anyone can join? Well, I want to sell it to companies because the companies can, uh, there's a couple of reasons. One is they can, they can afford it better than individuals. And the second is I probably teach more people. I've considered actually doing a, a public class. Those are a lot more difficult to, to pull off and actually be able to make money off of. So um, mm-hmm. it's something I'll consider in the future, but it's not high on my radar as far as where I want to go. 
I looked at your website the other day, back when you know we first started talking, and I'm looking at uh-huh. it again right now. I, what I didn't see was the fine print on the what is the Avuka MBA page that says uh, other acronyms are Banny, brittle, anxious, nonlinear, and comprehensible. I like the two to one, turbulent, uncertain, novel, ambiguous. Uh-huh. Uh, well, there, I think there's a lot of it's really interesting. It's almost like this cottage industry of creating new acronyms for how the world is. VUCA was the first one, so I stuck with VUCA. And then, you know, somebody said, well, it's Banny now. And then I looked into that, and there's a whole bunch of other ones. It, to me, they're all the same. If you read them, they're really saying that the world has there, – there are some fundamental changes to the world that have happened over, let's say, the last 50-plus years. And there's a coincidence with that. And that's the rise of what I would consider knowledge work and knowledge workers. And I would say that there's a rise of uh, complexity. You're pro- I know all your listeners are probably familiar with Kinevin and the concept of co- complexity that, that comes to us from Snowden. That was a real big unlock for me because that's what where we work most of the time. We work in a world of complexity. And the question is, if, if the world is fundamentally different, how do we actually thrive in that world? Not just survive. The interesting thing about waterfall development, I don't think anybody does pure waterfall anymore anyway, but hybrid environments and stuff like that, is you can still be successful, right? You can still deliver software. You can still sell software. You can still build products. You can still sell products. That's not the real question that I want to answer. You're not optimal. That's the real question is how can I be optimal? How can I deliver the most value in the shortest amount of time? How can I be most responsive to my customers? How can I take feedback and incorporate it quickly? This is different. And so if you're, you know, when a company says, well, we've been successful doing waterfall for 20 years, I'm like, great. I think it's wonderful, but that's not what I want to ask and what I want to answer. What I want to ask and answer is what could we do to to improve upon that? And, you know, you look at my new book, I, you know, I, I talk about it, the subtitles about, you know, focus on value delivery. That's the key for me, is how do we deliver value quickly? Waterfall in a lot of hybrid environments, they just don't do it quick enough. But that doesn't mean as a, as a company, I won't survive. But again, it's not survival. I, 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 that's why I say I want to thrive and not just survive. I want to create almost this concept that comes to us of anti-fragility. I don't want to just weather the storm. I want to be the company that when COVID hits, I make more money. I want to be the company that when something goes wrong, I can capitalize on it quickly and my competition can't. Anyway. Yeah, but that, that's the thing I think is different between you know now and then, whichever time period you want to choose. The cycles of change were a lot more elongated. The yeah. anomalous events that occurred were fewer and far between. And nowadays, the cycles of change are overnight. Um, yeah. And the anomalous events just come out of left field, sometimes multiple times a week. Right. And this is nothing new. I mean, it's still nothing new. Again, it's like, like the last 50 years. I looked into the history of VUCA as a word. It comes to us actually from the military uh, of all places. And, and it's been around for a while. I don't know if it's been for three, four or five decades, but it's been around a while. The thing I'm thinking about right now is actually Team of Teams, Stanley McChrystal, if, if you're not familiar with that book. He talks about that. And how the military has to change and become, you know, for lack of a better word, more mm-hmm. agile. And when, when I read that book, it was uh, one of my uh, coach friends uh, recommended I read that book. When I read that book, I thought he, he went to my class. He was saying the same things and, you know, uh, talking about military that I was talking about in my class. And he was talking about how now with social media, 
it changes the battlefield. I mean, people can organize quickly and strike quickly, and you don't have all this time to sift through a bunch of data and everything. You have to make quick decisions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I know I'm probably not doing this book justice, but it's a great book. But <laughs> this is the concept of agility, whether it be business or government or military or anything else, is how quickly can we move? Because the world itself, with our instant communication, I mean, things can, can go, it's mostly go wrong pretty quickly. They can unravel rather quickly. And how can you adjust? I mean, we just had it, COVID, right? Yeah. We saw this. This is a real-life almost experiment of who will have agility and who won't. Now, I know that there are certain types of industries that we're going to just lose in pandemic, like restaurant industry, et cetera. But you look at some of the companies that – there were some companies that really thrived during the pandemic because they took advantage of the environment. They were able to move nimbly and quickly into new markets, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think it's going to be unusual. I think larger upheavals of society, I think things changing quickly, I, I just think it continues, as you said, the timeline keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter, and companies need to be able to react to it. And if they don't, eventually they'll find themselves out of business. And, and most of the time, I tell a lot of companies, you don't have to be the fastest gazelle on the plane, but you sure, certainly can't be the slowest. I mean, you look at financial services, for example. There's, you got financial services. A lot of coaches work there because they want to be agile because all financial services really is technology. But a lot of financial services, and you've probably worked with them, I've worked with them, are still on AS400 and things of that nature. They, they just don't, they don't get it. But that's a thing us coaches talk a lot. I don't know if you've ever done that. I it just, you know, you say they don't get it. You've probably said it before, and I'm sure everybody's mm-hmm. said it before. I thought about that because maybe I got too much time on my hands. It's not that they don't get it. They're capable of getting it. They don't see it. This is why I keep going back to how we see the world being fundamentally different. We have to bring them into the way we see the world in order for them to be more effective. It's not that they don't get it. They don't see it. So every time I think in my head they don't get it, I change that and I say they don't see it. And then it's incumbent upon me to help them see what I see. And that gets us out of this kind of, I don't know what the depressive thing of, they're never going to get it. Mm-hmm. We we got to help them see it. Then they'll, then they'll eventually they'll, they'll, they might get it. And you mentioned anti-fragile. At my last company, we called it resilience or to be resilient. Mm-hmm. And I think you two are both kind of touching on how technology has made it and more people with a higher population has made it easier and easier for new technology, new companies to start up. So companies like Sears, I think it's the 50s or 60s, it was like one in four homes had a Sears credit card. Like yeah. that's insane if you really think about it. Uh, yeah. And where are they now? So I definitely think it is a real threat that's out there that companies need to to learn and adapt, or they'll be disrupted. Yeah, there's a thing that's called the Shift Index, which talks about that. It's been a while since I've seen it. It was uh, something where how long do companies stay on the Fortune 500 or something like that? Mm-hmm. It used to be like 25 years or 30 years and now it's like five to seven years and the number keeps getting smaller and smaller i mean i I joke about it in class i say you know if you have a problem with what i say send me a you know send me a message through myspace you know just to to highlight the fact (laughs) 
you know, the things that we see now that we think are going to be permanent are not. They're impermanent, and there's no guarantee that they'll last. I mean, the, the thing that most companies have is they have brand recognition and they have a lot of money. And that saves them from a lot of things because it, it creates, a, in a lot of places, an artificially high barrier. But the barrier for something like software development or the barrier for ideas or the barrier for AI, which is the new thing that everybody, you know, we're all going to be talking about and it's going to change the world, it's smaller and smaller. This is why AI is, you know, I don't know if you want to talk too much about it, but I'm fascinated by it because it's going, I think it's going to be so disruptive. But it has the ability to level the playing field like we haven't seen in a long time. So one of the things that I, I'm really interested in about AI is it's, it's democratizing in the sense that if anybody in the world can learn it and can start applying it. So the things that we have as far as the flow of capital and the communication of capital and things like that at companies, that those things are going to change. And I think we'll see hopefully more equity in the world not just within the United States, but within the world, because it's going to lower the barrier for people doing certain types of work. The downside is, I fear the, the number of people who might be displaced by AI in the future. And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but, but it's something that weighs heavy on my mind. And, and I think it's something as agile coaches that we have to start to consider, because I think we, we have a voice and, and we should start figuring out how we're going to speak to uh, the changes of a that, that AI are going to bring to the workplace. I would say I have the same concerns and wonder with AI. I do want to circle back a little bit, though, to the CEO, CAO mm -hmm. conversation we're having where, you know, I love that you call it a mindset. I know some people don't like it, but one of the mistakes that I see agilists doing, scrum masters, agile coaches, is they go to a, a senior executive, not even the C-suite. They're like, let me teach you Scrum. Yeah. And they don't need Scrum at that level. They need the, the mindset. They need to understand what is agility and how does it work because they don't need to work at that level. And so I think there's a disconnect there. And it, it keeps ringing in my head when we say things like, oh, they just don't get it or they just don't see it. And I think one of the challenges is that we're trying to convince people to see it or to use our words. And you touched on it with VUCA and the military story. And I think I've been more successful when I tried to get out of the jargon of our industry. And it's hard because it's like, like a fish right. being wet. You know, it's ingrained in us. And so words that seem not like jargon anymore, to me, still are jargon to some of these people. And so I think my opinion is the trick is how do we learn to communicate in a C-suite's language? And I don't know it because I've never been there. But if we could take agile concepts and use the words that they understand, I believe that is the answer to start influencing at that level. Yeah, I, I agree. The, the thing that, uh, you know, I have this talk that I've been given a lot of titled Seeing, Seeing Your Way to an Effective Agile Transformation, where I talk about my ideas on how we see the world being really fundamental to transformation and change. Um, I truly believe that. The thing that I talk about in, in that particular presentation is, okay, well, how do we do it? And the way that we do it is through metaphor. The way that we do it is through stories. All, if you look at all effective leaders throughout history, pick them, the ones that people have followed for years, Jesus, Buddha, Gandhi, etc. They all had a, a vision and they sold that vision. But if you look how they spoke, they spoke in things that were stories or parables or metaphors. I have a dream. 
Jesus spoke in parables. Because what we have to be able to do for people is we have to meet them where they are in what they see, and we have to bring them to where we are. And the, the vehicle for doing that is metaphor. That's why, you know, I talk about the book. Um, that's, that's going to be my fourth book, if I ever get around to it, which is going to be on agile metaphors. And I still got the Apke's Law, so I got five books in my head. Um, but the metaphor is the key. The stories are the key. You look at any politician, and I know politicians have a bad rap, but if you look at a good politician and how they spoke, they spoke in stories. They spoke in metaphors. And that's what we need as coaches. And that's, again, in my training, that's what I try to do. Because I want to say, look, this is what you're seeing. Here's a different way of seeing it. And I want to bridge that gap between the two. I don't think, I think it's the only way we can. Because really, if you look at human thought, it's all abstract for the most part. And so how do you, how do you overcome those abstractions? You got to have something that is concrete, a picture that you can present that's concrete, that somebody can see and taste and touch and feel and help them use those stories to get them from one place and what they see and how they think into another place and how they see and think. You know, along those lines, one of the analogies that I've been using for a while, what I talk about is the idea that for every product that you think you have, you actually have three products. There's the product that the end users are going to be putting their hands on to solve the jobs to be done. Then there's the product of the CI/CD pipeline that enables you to get and move code out to uh, to production environments and do so in a way where you're able to create these, these tests that can happen in production and A-B testing mm-hmm. and customer feedback. But the third one is the knowledge workers. Your yep. ability to have a group of knowledge workers that have the ability to communicate and work and collaborate with one another and carve out enough time together to not only talk about the work that they're doing so that they can deliver value, but carve out enough time to talk about how they're working together, strengthening the fabric of knowledge workers that you have so that you can incrementally improve over time. And I found some success with that kind of an analogy, I guess. I don't know if it is an an analogy, if I'm using the wrong word or not. But And uh, once once we start talking about it in, in those terms, realizing that there's these three streams that need to really be consistently maintained, well-organized, and you know, ready to move into action every increment, iteration, you know, whatever you want to call the time box, you know, that's when you're really able to have high quality, high performance and accelerate. That, with that, I agree. But as you're thinking, I'm, I'm thinking of the metaphor. I'm thinking of the story. Gotcha. So the way I would explain, the way I would try to explain it is I would try to explain it and say, look, let's imagine that you're, you have a big warehouse full of goods. Your job is to get those goods from the warehouse into people's houses. And you have to have a distribution network to do so. You have to rely on trucks. This is a very good one, by the way, because you can get a lot of metaphors out of this. But this is the CICD. It's like, wait a minute, I've got all these goods and I'm putting them on a crappy truck and it's going down a one-lane road. Now, what happens if I make more goods, which is what a lot of folks do? They make a bunch of goods, but they don't have the delivery mechanism, right? They don't have the trucks. What, what, what all that stuff is going to rot on your dock. You got to have the trucks. And the CICD is the trucks. And the CICD is the lanes. Because what good is it if I have 500 trucks and they're going down a one-lane road? I need to build more lanes. 
And so building that infrastructure and using that metaphor helps people to understand that that it's not just building the goods that matter, it's delivering the goods that actually matters more. And if I'm going to put the time and the effort, it should be into building the infrastructure, building more lanes and, and buying more trucks, so to speak. Eventually, you'll torture the metaphor. But then they'll start to get it. Because a lot of the people are making decisions, and they might be financial decisions, and they might be personnel decisions. They just don't know this. They're not bad people. A lot of times, they just don't know that all their goods are sitting and rotting on the dock, and that they should stop spending money to create a bunch more stuff that's going to rot. And instead, they should stop the rot, and they should start buying the trucks and building the infrastructure. And that that's an, an ongoing investment because you get potholes in the road, the bridges wash out, et cetera, et cetera. So I need to not just buy more trucks, but I have to maintain them, et cetera, et cetera. And you can keep going with these metaphors, and then that's where people start to understand. I think that's where the, the strength of coaching will come in is the ability to use the metaphors and the stories to get people to understand the things that we understand almost implicitly, right? It doesn't make sense. It's the it's same thing with value argument. A lot of times, and this is this is our own fault as coaches and, and scrum masters, et cetera, and people in the agile business, is we get hot, we get hopped up on building things quickly, and we forget that it's not the quantity of goods, but the quality of goods that matter. It's the value of the goods and the value that those goods bring that matter. And so we measure things like story points. Story points is important. Okay, there's a lot of people out there, I'm not one of them, who say, stop measuring story points, stop doing this. No, 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 I think you got to do it better, and, and I go through that in my training. But leave that aside for a second. That's talking only about effort expanded. It tells me nothing about the value delivered. And when we start to concentrate and focus on value delivered, it changes things. So when I'm teaching you know, my class and when I'm working with product owners and I'm working with a business, there's a bunch of coaches that will go out there and they'll make sure that they have story points on every story. And there'll be zero value on the, any of the stories. I'm going to go back and I'm going to say, I want you to take every single one of these stories and I want you to give me a relative value on every piece of work that we could deliver. That changes things. Again, this is a mindset. What I do, and, and this is in the book, the third book, and I'm not just, I think it's my best book because I, I think it's very practical. It talks about how do we assess value and effort quickly and how do we use value and effort to deliver the most value over time. There's so few coaches who talk about this and there's very few scrum masters who talk about this. This is what business people care about, by the way. They don't care about the effort that you put into something. They want to know what is the value I'm delivering. And, and that becomes the, the argument. And again, you can go with value of, you know, why would you sell a bunch of stuff for a penny when you can sell something for uh, $10,000? Um, and it doesn't take a lot of effort. Anyway, um, I just think there's all, these are the metaphors that we have to use to be able to speak to the people in, in the C-suite and the people in positions of power who are making decisions and sometimes making suboptimal, I don't want to say good or bad, suboptimal decisions. And it's only because they don't see the world we see. we got to help them to see the world we see so that they can make better decisions because then they it's a matter of where do I invest? Do I invest in the pipeline? Do I invest in the highway? Do I invest in the trucks? Or do I invest in making more goods that can't be delivered? But until you can get to them and explain that to them in rather simplistic terms, I don't mean that in a negative sense, but it's simple in the sense that somebody can understand it, then you're going to lose. This is one of the, you know, one of the biggest successes I had in my previous job was we basically took, as far as I know, and some, you got a bunch of listeners who can tell me if I'm wrong about this. It was the largest and fastest transformation from project scope based funding to product and capacity funding. 
It was over a billion dollars, and we did it in seven months. I don't think anybody's ever done that before. That's pretty amazing. And the reason I think we were able to do that is the ability to get people on the financial side of things, and there's some very talented and smart people on the financial side of things. We started having conversations that said, here's the problems that we have with funding and project and scope. These are the problems that are being caused by this. If we were to fund by product and capacity, here's the advantages to it. And we didn't have to sell it after that because once they got it, they sold it to their people. And again, we did something that is unheard of. Now, we can argue how well we did it, but we did do something that was pretty much unheard of. And it comes down to, in my mind, again, it's the way we see the world and and the mindset that we bring to the work. I try to always remind myself of Hanlon's razor, or at least a nicer version of it. And it's that people don't do things out of malicious intent. They do it out of naivety or lack of knowledge. Right. And that helps me, especially in the moment, because it's easy to get really frustrated or even angry when somebody does something that to you may feel malicious in the moment. And to stop and just say, like, they just don't understand. And it's my job to educate them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I I agree 100% with that. Because we've all met people that are kind of jerks. But even the jerks want to be successful. They just, sometimes they don't know. And it's really, it's, again, I come back to this humility thing. That was the thing for me. And it's, it's not easy for me. And I'm sure for a lot of agile coaches because of the kind of work we do and what we do. But We've got to remain humble, too. We've got to be open to the fact that we are going to make mistakes and we need to learn for those mistakes. And unfortunately, I think the world of Agile is being tainted in, in a lot of ways um, because, you know, we talk, we hear people talk about industrial Agile and all this stuff. There's a lot of people out there who have missed the point of what we're trying to accomplish. I, I think what, what the really good Agile coaches and what Agile is about is that we care about people deeply. And part of that caring is we have to be empathetic and sympathetic. I always said that the two things that we need for a successful transformation are patience and compassion, which people call soft skills, but damn, they're the hardest skills out there. Even for us as coaches, we have to always remind ourselves that these are people who, just like us, want to be successful. And we need to help them, even though at times it it doesn't seem that way. But such as such as the nature of human existence, right? I do want to ask you uh, at least one more question. Sure. And it's something that I started to realize as an Agile consultant and being hired by these companies to go in there and to teach them Agile. And what I realized is that to me, Agile, as you mentioned, is a mindset. It's very philosophical. And I love philosophy. I love history. I love all those things. Not everyone does. And really, what they're asking me to do is not teach them necessarily to be agilist. They don't want to know it the way I do it. They don't want to be able to go into the business of agile. What they want to know is, how do I apply this to my job, to the thing that I'm already doing, to be you know more effective or to improve my mastery in my craft? And I'm curious your thoughts or if you have any guidance or direction on how do we help those people without trying to turn them into us? Well, I don't know if I'm trying to turn. I think the one thing is I, I don't want to just assume that I'm trying to turn them into us per se. Um, the, here's the thing. Everybody's going to ask what's in it for me. And you have to make that argument of what's in it for me. 
And the more abstract, like what I teach is very abstract, I think. The more abstract it is, the harder it's going to be. So the thing that I really lean on uh, in mine is I, I tell them that when you leave this class, you're making an investment, that you're going to get a greater payoff on your investment. And here's the reasons why I know, and I'll, I'll try to you know, bring in some of the testimonials and things that other people have said. Give it a shot, right? you got nothing to lose. But it's, it's a tough thing, Brad, because what will happen is people don't want to change the way they think, and they don't want to change what they see. What they do is they tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. Which means, really, I'm going to translate that into into what they're really saying is, how do I use Jira in my job? Is usually what that means. I think I'm at a point in my career where I'm going to say, there's other people who help you with that. That's not my thing. I think I'm at that point. I think I can get away with it. Let's hope, right? We all have to eat. Maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping. I, I hope I can do that because that what that's what I think is really important. It's what I want to do. It's what I'm good at. It's what I'm excited about. If I'm wrong about that, then I'll teach them how to use Jira or whatever. I'm going to do whatever it takes to put food on the table because that comes first, right? Family first. But if we do that, we run into problems. I think we really should push back as much as we can against people and say, look, I'll teach you that, but first we need to go through this. I want you to understand some of the why behind it. But it's, it is, it's a tough thing because people can say, what's in it for me? And if that's all they want. In my mind, I worked with a lot of coaches at my, my last gig. In my mind, I'd just say, hey, and I, I, the coaches reported to me. I'd just say, look, I'm not the coach for you. And I'd go find one that can you know, say, this person can help you. Because I, every coach has different skills. And it's just not my skill. And, it, and I'm just not that interested in it, that kind of thing anymore. But there's no real answer, too. Because if, if somebody is hurting, you sh- one of the very first things like a physician is do no harm and take care of them. So you have to ask yourself, you know, can I do that? Is it worth doing that? Because you will, in some cases, by doing so, reinforce that behavior that all we have to do is change the way we behave. And I don't think it's sufficient. I, I just don't think it's sufficient. The metaphor I would use is we all have kids. Uh, or most of us have kids, and we have experience with kids. If you, if you don't, I, I can tell you a lot of stories. They want to eat ca- ice cream all day long. You know, you, they can't. You can't have them eating ice cream all day long. And if you want somebody to really get better at something, they have to want to get better at it. And if they, if they're just saying that, they don't want to get better at it. So I don't know if I can be any help to them. It's like you know, I always talk a lot about the gym. If you want to be fit and healthy, you're going to have to invest time in the gym, right? You're going to have to go. You're going to have to d- discipline. If you're not going to do those things, you, who cares? You've got to be willing to put in the, the effort. Mine, the effort is here. I've had teams, by the way, that I've had the luxury to do this. Not all coaches do, so I, I don't want to be flippant about it. But I had the luxury at one place where the, the team came to me and they said, we want you to coach us. And that's how things would wor- work. And I said, okay, in order for me to coach you, I need you to do these two things. I didn't think they were big things. One, you got to take my class because I, I want us to have the same grounding, and I think it's important. I think it will help you. And two is they want to do scrum, and I have this thing in scrum that you have to invest a certain amount of hours per sprint. And I said, these are the two things I need. And they said, we can't do it. I said, good luck. I can't help you. You know, there's other coaches. I can give you referrals to other coaches. They can help. I can't help you. I don't think I can be effective if, if you're not willing to do these things. One of my mentor coaches was – was talking to me about this concept uh, only a couple of weeks back, and it was like kind of new to me. But the idea of just 
going in and saying, all right, if this is what we're going to do, this is what I need from you. And I started putting it into practice and it immediately paid out in spades. If you went to a trainer and said, I want to be fit and healthy, and they said, okay, we're going to go to the gym you know, every day for an hour, and they say, well, I can't do that, what are you going to do as a trainer? I yeah. Mean, yeah. Right. It's like, I can't give you what you want unless you give me what I need. Well, you know, I think this has been a, an amazing episode. I think we've definitely gotten a lot of new words from you that, and I think that's the other thing is, is that it's not just the isms or the stories. Sometimes it's just learning a new way of explaining the concept that you're already trying to explain and getting a new perspective on it. So I absolutely appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. I could talk about this for years on end. I know, right? Uh, Yeah. It's just, it's fun for me. And what a wonderful thing that, you know, that you guys are doing for the community to put this together. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, as Drew mentioned, I think I got several nuggets from this. You know, this is, oh gosh, I've kind of lost track. We've had over 30 episodes now in in our first year, which is pretty fantastic. I think we've exceeded even our own expectations. Uh, And so we kind of have a pretty good idea now when we're recording, is this going to be an episode that's very educational or is there new stuff that we haven't talked about before? And so I definitely think that this is going to be a great episode for our listeners. So thank you very good. much, Larry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and one thing I got to mention, I should have mentioned before, I, I'm, I'm doing a LinkedIn live event every Friday at noon Pacific. It's called Relentless Learning. And I will be doing that every week till God knows when. I used to do it at every company I worked for. I figured I'd just do it for the world. So I'm trying to build up a, a following for that. It's it's basically, I have a guest, we present two big ideas, um, and the show runs for 45 minutes. So if you get a chance, any any inclination to check it out, we'd yeah. love to have you um, join us. And, and maybe if you come up with, uh, you have some ideas that you want to talk about, you can reach out to me and we can get you on the show. That's That'd be wonderful. Yeah, I'm looking forward okay. to that for sure. Okay. I got to go. My son's uh, going to start eating the wallpaper uh, if I don't get <laughs> Thanks I again, Larry. You, guys. you have a great evening. You too. Thanks, Larry. All right. Bye-bye.